Welcome to the Novice to Office podcast. I am the guy with the pulse on American politics, Trey Bam. Thanks again for tuning in. Let me apologize for some mild irregularities in our scheduling as of late. I don't want to give you the impression that I know what I'm doing when it comes to podcasting. But you can take everything I say about history, politics, and government without the slightest concern. I may be sometimes in error, but I am never in doubt. Today, we go to school. Yes, we are going to discuss what is arguably the single most common every day, everybody does it all the time, interaction with government that is the va- that the vast majority of folks have, school. Even if you have nothing to do with school, your kids are grown or you don't have kids, If you get caught in mild neighborhood traffic, chances are it's a school zone or a school bus that's slowing you down. And this is government writ large. The school bus, in fact, may be the most ubiquitous form of government out there, more even than the police SUV, I'll bet. Americans' attitude toward education is generally sacred, but it is also unique to the rest of the world and how American education philosophy cannot escape the democracy-saturated ethos of our culture. Another way of putting it is, education in America is like a cake, where the cake part is the instruction and the training, and the layered filling and the icing is democracy. A core value of American society is state-led education. It just is. This goes back to Thomas Jefferson Joe Kawaka is a law and philosophy professor at SMU, and he points out that although he was a radical supporter of small government, Jefferson advocated consistently for what the professor calls an active state. Um, Kawaka just uh, cites Jefferson's aggressive support of public education and the creation of the University of Virginia as evidence. And sure, pretty much all Western nations push government-directed or mandated education for its young citizens, but in the United States, we kind of have skipped over the risks of government-led education insofar as we generally are at odds with our government. But And I would argue that there are two policy areas where Americans have an unquestioned view that government should be the leader, and that's defense and education. Just about every U.S. state devotes almost half its annual budget to education of all types. If you have a state which has high property taxes, chances are local education takes up the lion's share. And about one-third of the current federal deficit, that's the cash we're short every year, one-third is due to education spending, most of it's student loans. So it's a big deal. Americans are pro-education because it speaks to our ideas of a democratic meritocracy and our craving for wealth. Most Americans have this assumption that we will maximize everyone's potential and everyone will make money if we can just get everyone an education. This, of course, also meshes with our ideas of equality. Everyone needs equal access to an education to get this wealth. And so when you have these basic ideas, there's no way you can't get the government involved or have Thomas Jefferson's active state. The American template for education goes back to the Puritans. The Puritans had one goal in education, literacy for the purpose of reading the Bible, period. The New England Primer was America's first reading book for this purpose. Uh, It was published in the late 17th century, and it dominated as a way to train kids to read for 
a century, a hundred years. And that was the template. Uh, group education uh, centered on reading aloud. Your group of average New England towns, people, school was for all ages, six to 14 year olds. And once you got older than that, you'd go off to an apprentice or maybe a, a high school if they had one. These schools were of the famous one room variety. Uh, they were much more common in the North. In the South, you had usually a private tutor for, for kids or maybe a religiously affiliated school somewhere. Uh, slaves in the South, of course, were not taught to read or write for obvious reasons, though there were exceptions. Um, Thomas Jackson, who went on to become Confederate General Stonewall Jackson, was one of these exceptions because of the importance he gave to all people being able to read the Bible. Both boys and girls learned basic literacy up until that 14-year-old range, but usually that's where the education stopped for girls. They, too, would go to work, usually in their own home in preparation for marriage. And this was the model for decades. Even during and after the Revolution, in the U.S. Constitution, in Article One, Section 8, the so-called Enumerated Powers Clause, uh, it's silent on on education, which means that it can be the responsibility of both federal and state governments. However, any state that creates a public education system has to comply with federal equal protection laws, which of course has and has had a huge impact on schools, but more on that in a minute. All of this education back then was paid for by per student tuition. There were state mandates to have schools, but during the first half of America's history from the 1600s to the 1830s, the authorities thought that tuition would carry the day. The rich would pay in cash and the poor farmers would pay in produce. In the 1830s, we get our first American education leader reformer, Horace Mann. Mann was a Massachusetts lawyer and politician who turned, tried to think outside the box uh, we'll call him a free thinker, and at least relative to the old Puritan way of thinking. In 1837, Massachusetts became the second state to create a state board of education, and Mann became the first secretary. Mann wanted to change all the little one-room town schools using what was called the Prussian model of education. The Prussian model from Germany, of course, had several features which were we take for granted today, but chief among them was sorting and separating the students into same-age grades, regardless of ability. Before, in those one-room schoolhouses, the older students would actually teach the younger students, and then the teacher itself would be kind of a roving troubleshooter. In the Prussian model, the teacher is a bona fide lecturer and an expert in their subject as a result. And this was a sea change in education expectations in the country, and it's where we get the idea of schools being a place for reading, writing, and ciphering. So math and the sciences were added. Horace Mann is really the father of the modern education system. Uh, and he got a lot of support from the emerging American middle class who knew that their kids needed a next-level education that focused on those specialized subjects, especially literature, math, and science. Uh, because this was right at the beginning of the American industrialization period. So these Massachusetts reforms caught on pretty quick. And then after the Civil War, uh, many abolitionists and others from New England, they took this model into the South. 
to educate emancipated slaves. All these schools operate exclusively as local units, depending on where you were in the country. Sometimes a city or county would shepherd or support the school. Other times the schools and the districts that formed around them were just a collection of citizens. One of those famous associations that we keep talking about. But Eventually, when they were formalized, they still got their powers from the state, and then eventually bureaucracies in the state would form to support those schools. You may not know that what we assume about education in America that I mentioned at the start came from one guy, and I will tell you his name after my shameless plug. We are back. Our schooling continues. I listed at the very start of our podcast the assumptions we as Americans have about what education, public education especially, should be. We talked about it being, in essence, a system that trains everyone to realize their potential, make everyone wealthy or at least productive, and be a system that gives everyone an equal chance at the aforementioned. It's true that the founders put a premium on education. We mentioned Thomas Jefferson. But these assumptions we have that I just said don't quite go back to them. Contrary to what many of us think, the founders believed very much in a natural elite that was none, nevertheless a product of a long line of elites. Now, they wouldn't have recognized the, the lowly pauper who pulled himself up by the bootstraps, and they didn't like elites who were that by entitlement or inheritance, like you had in England or in Europe. They thought those were rotten. But the founders understood that it came from one long line of self-made people. It wouldn't have been success based on equality. That isn't kind of how they approached education. And they just, opportunities for women, uh, black Americans, Indians, they just didn't enter in to how the founders kind of saw things. Uh, so we have another New Englander, John Dewey, and he is the one who we can credit the equality-centered educational system to. Uh, Dewey was from Vermont, but got his PhD from Johns Hopkins in Maryland in 1884. He was a philosophy student and spent a ton of time as well in the emerging field of psychology. Uh, so he bought, brought this macro approach to education. He was also part of the political movement at the time known as progressivism, which was generally a reaction to the American Industrial Revolution, uh, a reaction rooted in the teachings of German philosopher Karl Marx and others. Uh, The central view Dewey had in social development wasn't communism, though, but he did take the view that people were primarily economic units and should be educated accordingly. And This is in contrast to what had really been the theory of education, the basis of education for thousands of years, that people are mainly spiritual or ethical beings in need of religious and or cultural structure. That said, Dewey still emphasized a more open, give-and-take role between the teacher and student. He didn't like the disciplinarian rote instruction where the student either learned the subject or died. He is, Dewey is the one who came up with the idea of a child exploring ideas on their own as well as their identity, as opposed to a school system that simply churned out hardened skills. But Dewey's idea of education hit at a ripe time, similar to Horace Mann, in that the continuing march of the American middle class wanted more of their schools. 
We can harp on the influence of reformers like Mann and Dewey, but they are second to the demands of American parents when it comes to how schools have developed in the country. American parents and community leaders have always been the drivers of education of their kids. By 1930, it is estimated that there were around 130,000 school districts across the country, all financed and governed through a variety of ways, usually by board. But this began to change during and after World War II as parents began, pu- parents began pushing for better schools with more resources, one-room schoolhouses or, or those that had combined age groups, which were still very common in the country. State legislatures began consolidating all these little districts into larger ones so that bigger, better equipped schools could be built and better teachers could serve more students. State bureaucracies to support uh, this model, of course, also grew. Uh, And parents uh, teamed up with professional educators in order to get the schools going. Local taxes to support the schools also increases. Today, we only have about 13,000 school districts around the country. And at the same time, the battle of many Americans over civil rights and civil liberties took off. The United States had ru- Supreme Court had ruled in 1896 that local governments could keep different races separate when using public facilities as long as they were equal. And in, uh, in an in, this was as a result of an infamous, infamous case called Plessy versus Ferguson. And it wasn't until in 1954 when a Topeka, Kansas resident named Oliver Brown wanted to enroll his daughter in a school closer to their home instead of at the segregated school across town. When the Board of Education of Topeka refused, Brown and other black families filed a class action lawsuit, which made it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, Although Brown wanted to avoid having his daughter ride the bus to the other school, the new precedent set by the case of Brown versus Board of Education ironically ended up requiring thousands of schools across the nation to bus students among schools in order to make sure they weren't segregated. The new precedent was made because Plessy versus Ferguson was seen as violating the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment that I mentioned earlier. But later in 1962, the Supreme Court also ruled that public schools couldn't require or enable a prayer. This was in the case of Engel versus Batali. This was based on a view that that a prayer put forth by the school itself was a violation of the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment to the Constitution, which, of course, prohibits government from naming an official religion. But the battle over this continues. Just last year, the Supreme Court ruled that there was some gray area Uh, And when it said that it was okay that uh, Coach Joe Kennedy of Washington State, when he led a prayer on the 50-yard line of his public high school after a football game, he was a coach, that they said that was okay. Like I said, this is most people's experience with government. Only in America do we have this kind of crossroads, all owing to how our education system is infused with our Americanism. As I conclude, let me share a word about school budgets. And governance. There's no one way to describe them across the country, but as a rule, they follow kind of an 85 10 5 finance spread. That is, 85% comes from local taxes, 10% comes from the state, and 5% usually comes from the federal government. This is very rough. It's not quite the same like that everywhere, but it's usually kind of a breakdown like this. 
the federal share is sometimes higher depending on if the school serves a disadvantaged population, uh, such as low income. The federal government also funnels money into school dining operations via child nutrition programs, which again is only a couple percentage points of a given school's budget, but the federal government is very much there. Here's an example of a budget document for the school district in which I reside, Leander Independent School District. In Texas here, the independent part of the name goes back several decades to indicate that the district is not run by a particular town, county, or other local jurisdiction. Leander ISD is a big suburban district with six large high schools and just under 44,000 students. It's pretty common in its student population relative to the rest of the country. And here, uh, as with the county website, we have a link for fiscal trans financial transparency. And here we have the budget. And you can see and read more than you could ever want to know about how this district runs. Leander ISD is also a high growth district, so it has a lot of bonds it owes money on due to construction projects. Anyway, that's how we know where local education dollars go and how the people we elect spend them. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to like and subscribe and especially share. Until our next episode, keep it free. <music>